Well, good morning. It's a joy to bring the message of the Word of God to you this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we need you uh, desperately to come and bring your Word alive to us. We can be dull in our understanding. Lord, we can uh, sometimes hear it as something we've always heard or sounds commonplace to us, but now, Lord, we ask that you would bring it afresh to us by your Spirit. Fill our minds, fill our hearts with reminders of your promise, and let us live it, Lord, not just be hearers of of these truths, but then be doers of them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, do you remember the children's fable called The Emperor's New Clothes? Do you know that fable? A couple of con men, they enter a kingdom and they swindle the emperor into believing that the clothes that they make are the very best in all of the world. And so fine is their work, they say, that the clothes become invisible to those who are either um, incompetent for their work or just complete fools. And so the cons pretend to make their clothing. And as they do, a minister, and then an official, and then the emperor himself comes to inspect the work that these weavers are doing. Now, each of these, of course, sees nothing but an empty loom. But they think to themselves, well, if I don't see anything, I might be called a fool. And the emperor says, if I say I don't see anything, people will think I'm unfit for my role in the kingdom. And so out of fear of humiliation, they instead remark, oh, how marvelous the work is going. Finally, the weavers announce that the royal robes are done, and the emperor then takes off his clothes, and they pretend to dress the emperor, who comments on how he loves the outfit. The emperor then marches out into town with his new clothes, completely naked. The entire town sees his nakedness, but no one wants to say a thing for for the fear of being called fools themselves. And then finally, a child in the crowd blurts out, the emperor has no clothes. And all the people in the town come to their senses. But the story ends like this. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right. But he thought this procession must go on, so he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. If you're just tuning in to our series uh, on Galatians, or if you need a quick refresher, Galatians is the Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in first century Galatia. It's a province, large geographical area with many cities and their new churches in what's modern-day Turkey. False teachers, like the false weavers in the story, The Emperor's New Clothes, have persuaded these Galatian churches to believe in something that is not there at all in the gospel. They're teaching that a Christian, to be accepted by God, must keep the Jewish laws. Now, Paul had never taught that. Paul's message of acceptance with God through faith in Jesus alone had been distorted by these false teachers. They were teaching what he will call, Paul, a a different gospel, a man's gospel, a gospel that is not good news at all. 
And so Paul writes this emergency letter to sound the alarm over the real dangers, the real dangers to your soul of believing a fraud. Paul's tone is kind of like a perplexed, exasperated father with his child who's going off the rails, right? Paul knows that there is something wrong, and he's been pretty calm up to this point, but he can hardly hold back his anguish, and he lets it out here in verse 1 where he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, what has bewitched you? Paul knows that there's a bewitching power that comes through strong delusions, a power that can leave even you and I as Christians spellbound, unquestionably committed to it, and perhaps like the emperor, just a little bit too proud to believe the naked truth. Well, how do you break that kind of spell, the spell of a false belief? Well, in short, I believe it takes a greater power than human reason alone. It takes the Spirit of God revealing the truth of the authentic message of Jesus. So I want us to consider today these two questions. What are marks of the authentic gospel of Jesus? What are marks of the authentic gospel of Jesus, and what does the authentic gospel tell you about your true identity? So first, what are the marks of the authentic gospel of Jesus? Well, as we've seen in this letter so far, Paul argues his case like a defense attorney at court. In Galatians 3, Paul makes his case for the truthfulness of his message by giving us at least three marks, three marks of the authentic gospel. First, take a look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now take this to mean that Paul had publicly taught all around those provinces in Galatia, that Jesus' crucifixion had a great significance. Kind of like the Kobe Bryant billboards that are going up all around the country in recent weeks, Jesus' death was so significant that Paul gave up everything to go as public as he could with this message. Paul preached city to city at the risk of his own life. And his message was this, Jesus, the Messiah, was crucified. Listen to these words of Paul to the church in the city of Corinth in Greece. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was so convinced of the significance of Jesus' death that he felt compelled to tell people publicly. So what is it? What is so significant about Jesus' death that made Paul leave his former job of killing Christians and start gossiping this gospel all throughout the world? Listen to Paul's own words. This comes from the opening couple chapters of Galatians we've read already. Galatians 1, verse 4. Paul says, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. So much in that. 
And then in Galatians 2.20, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Mark of the authentic gospel is that it teaches that Jesus gave his life for sinners. Sinners. Peoples that are so spiritually powerless that only Jesus, God the Son, could save them. The authentic gospel is not what a sinner can give to God, but rather what God the Son gave to sinners. When it comes to receiving God's favor, all that we do, all of our finest thinking, all of our best intentions, all of our greatest works, they are nothing but the emperor's new clothes. Only Jesus, only Jesus can clothe us. Jesus died to remove our guilt and our shame and also to robe us in his righteousness. Do you believe that, Seven Mile? A mark of the authentic gospel is that it teaches that Jesus was crucified to save sinners. Now, what happens when that message is believed and received by faith? Listen to Paul in verse 2. Paul says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul brings up the Spirit. What is the Spirit that Paul's talking about? It's the first time he brings up the Spirit in the letter, but it's certainly not going to be the last. To understand the receiving of the Spirit that Paul is talking about, we need to rewind a little bit Get a little history of Paul's preaching. So here, a couple of sound bites of Paul's preaching in Galatia to Galatian churches. And this comes from the book of Acts, chapters 13 and 14. Paul says in Acts 13, Let it be known that through this man, meaning Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Now hear how Paul says that the law cannot and does not free you. It can't release the guilty conscience. It can't cover our shame. And it doesn't come with the Holy Spirit. Now keep that in mind. In Acts 13.52 we read, that those who believed Paul's message were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. And then reading on, turning the page into Acts 14, Paul visits the Galatian city of Iconium, and you see the Lord, who is the Spirit, he bore witness to the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by the apostles' hands. So what is Paul talking about in Galatians 3.2? Isn't it that the Holy Spirit of God has shown up when the authentic gospel was preached and when it was believed? That the Holy Spirit had verified Paul's message without a single word about the work of the law being preached as a condition for salvation. The Galatians had simply received the Spirit, not by the law, but by hearing with faith. 
So a second mark of this authentic gospel is that when Jesus, the message, is received by faith, the Spirit of God shows up and there is evidence of his presence. Now by contrast, the false teachers, they'd been proclaiming their false, their false gospel around Galatia as well, and the Holy Spirit had not shown up. There wasn't a shred of evidence of godly spiritual change as a result of their man-made pseudo-gospel. In fact, we're going to see the opposite. Listen again to Paul in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles, remember that from Acts, he works miracles among you to do so, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So in verse 3, Paul introduces another word, a word that also will be repeated many times in this letter, and that word is the flesh. Flesh. Paul's contrast between works of the Spirit on one hand and works of the flesh on the other, it points us to a very important third mark of the authentic gospel, and that's this, that the true gospel, by the power of the Spirit, produces good fruit in a believer's life. That is, the Spirit will transform a person, their character, in ways that friends and co-workers and family, they can't help but notice that there is a change, that that person, you, are a different person because of your faith. You're perhaps more loving. Perhaps there's more joy. Perhaps there's a lot less pride that there was there before. There's a peace, perhaps, that you've, they've never seen before. Now contrast that with man's gospel, one that's lived in the power of what Paul calls the flesh, with its message of self-wisdom and self-confidence and self-reliance, what fruit would that produce? Well, we'll see that the bewitching power of a delusional gospel produces the opposite of these godly qualities. It produces diseased fruit like anxiety and strife and jealousy and lust, anger, bitterness, dissension, you can go on. Things like that. Remember, Jesus had said this to his disciples, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but every diseased tree bears bad fruit. You will recognize them by their fruits. Now, I think it's worth taking a, a short aside here to say a little bit more about this word flesh, which is really going to get a whole lot more airtime in future sermons. In chapters ahead, Paul will contrast living by the flesh with living by the Spirit. There are two main pitfalls for the Christian of living by the flesh. What are those pitfalls? Well, first, a Christian can live by the flesh by living as though God's approval must be maintained. Hear that? That his approval must be maintained by doing Good works. Now that's the false teaching in Galatia. And today we'd call it legalism. Paul calls it works of the law. 
A legalistic Christian misuses God's law by making it the way to maintain God's favor, his acceptance. Earning or maintaining God's favor through good works is something that the law was never designed to do. Now, that doesn't make the law useless. And you'll hear a lot about law in this letter. The law is like a school teacher. It was given to, given to train us what it means to love God and to love others. And then it shows us just how far we fall short of doing that. The law reveals to us the sinfulness of sin, the sinfulness of our lovelessness. And then it points out to us we really need a Savior. That's the usefulness of the law. The law, however, cannot earn us God's favor. A lifestyle of Christian legalism, working to maintain God's favor, is essentially living as if Jesus' crucifixion was good for nothing. And without Jesus' forgiveness and righteousness robing us, we are back in the pit. That's legalism. Second, there's a polar opposite to legalism, which is sometimes called lawlessness, and that's also a false gospel. A Christian can live, a Christian can live by the flesh and abuse God's grace by making it into a license for sin. And that's something God's grace, as we know, was never intended to do. The pitfall of Christian lawlessness is essentially to ignore God's law. And so never gainings an understanding of what it means to love God and love neighbor, nor how great our sin is as we fall short, and therefore how great our Savior is. And let me give you an illustration that I hope just illustrates those two pitfalls of living by the flesh. I want you to picture a mountain that has a sheer rock face that goes all the way up into the heavens. Okay? That mountain we're going to call Mount Ten Commandments. And there's a path that circles that mountain and goes all the way up to the glorious, glorious heavens. But along that mountain, you have free climbers. You know, free climbers, they're, no ropes, they're just taking the mountain in their own strength. And up they go, up Mount Ten, and as they get so far, they realize no one has the strength to climb the mountain. And so they eventually grow weary, they lose grip, and they plummet into the pit below. That's the free climbers, the legalists, trying to climb the law in their own strength. Then on the mountain, you also have those who have taken that path. That path of grace has taken them up to a certain point, but they're really not interested in getting all the way up to the heaven, up into the heavens. They're more interested in the thrill of jumping off that mountain. They're the, they're the base jumpers, right? Their thrill is to just get that rush of jumping off, and eventually, as they leave that Mount Ten Commandments, they will perish as well in the pit below. But besides the climbers, the legalists, and besides the base jumpers, the lawless ones, there are on that mountain the hikers. Those hikers have found that the only way up the mountain is to follow this path called the Christ. 
But taking that path is not always an easy path. And along the ways, they're going to be tempted by pride to go over to the legalists and start climbing on their own. Or on the other hand, they may get bored with this path and they'll think, oh, for a quick throw, I'm just going to throw myself off the mountain with the base jumpers or the lawless ones. But to those who persevere on the path of Christ, if you will, the mountain Sherpa, the Holy Spirit, is given as that hiker's helper. He knows the way of the Christ, and he carries all the necessary supplies to walk that path up to its glorious end. Only the hiker will, who keeps in step with that mountain Sherpa, who is the Spirit, will arrive. There's so much more to say about walking by faith and by the Spirit in weeks ahead, so stay tuned on that. Let's return to the passage, to verse 4 for a minute. There is a very perplexing, this is a very perplexing verse. Listen again. Did you suffer, he says to the Galatian church, did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? What are you talking about, Paul, right? What things have the Galatians suffered and were those things in vain or or weren't they? Well, it's possible Paul is talking about Christian suffering here. But with others... I think that this verse is understood by its context here. What's the context? Well, it's their previous experience with the Holy Spirit. So the word that's translated in the ESV as suffer, I think could also be translated as experience. So read it like this. To get a clearer meaning, read the verse. Did you experience so many things, meaning things of the Holy Spirit, in vain, if indeed they were in vain? Now, if you take it that way, Paul seems to be giving hope to a faltering Galatian church. They've received the Spirit of God at first through faith. They received the Spirit, and that wasn't in vain. There was still a real possibility of returning to the path of Christ by walking by the Holy Spirit. Well, I want this word here in verse 4 to encourage you as a Christian. Because even after you've experienced something of the Spirit, as most of us have, you and I can wander from that path of Christ. We can walk in self-reliance and self-confidence. Paul is saying here, a return to the Spirit, a return to the path by faith, return from the legalism, or return from the lawlessness, will not be in vain. And remember, remember the story, the fable, the emperor who, when confronted with the truth, he shivered and he suspected what he heard was right. And then he thought, the procession has got to go on. And so he walked more proudly than ever. We are under the same spell, the witching spell of that emperor, if we keep up our shameful procession of self Reliance, legalism, perhaps self-interest, lawlessness, in the light of the naked truth. So if you are on the path of Christ and you feel that bewitching pool of legalism or lawlessness, the solution here is to cry out to God 
Now is the time of returning to the path of Christ. Today is still the day of walking by the Spirit. Paul says, your return, Galatians, your return, Christian, will not be in vain. So let's recap here. Three marks of the authentic gospel. One, it preaches Christ crucified for sinners. Two, the Holy Spirit shows up when that authentic gospel is believed. And three, that Holy Spirit then produces good fruit in the believer's life. Fruit that we will see later of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So, on to our second question. What does the authentic gospel say about your true identity? Do you remember the kid's song about Father Abraham? You know, he's the guy who had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right on. Okay, well, in verses 6 through 9, it's amazing to me how much Paul takes for granted here of the Galatians' prior knowledge of this Jewish patriarch, Abraham. Apparently, the Galatians had gone to Sunday school because Paul is going to use these multi-layered illustrations from Abraham's life throughout the rest of this letter. So get ready. Paul calls Abraham into the witness stand, and he begins like this, verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, if you're a little fuzzy about that, that historical reference of when Abraham was credited by God as right with him, right with God, let's rewind again to take a quick look at what Paul is looking and what Paul is talking about. Where and when is Abraham declared right with God? For that, you've got to go back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, chapter 15. And in Genesis 15, Abraham, then known as Abram, gets a promise from God in the form of what is an astronomy and mathematics exercise. Genesis 15 says this. God brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then God said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. That is, by faith, Abraham believed God's promise about offspring, and so Abraham was then justified by God for his faith. Now, why, why does Paul bring Abraham into the courtroom at all? Well, the reason has everything to do with, these, with what these false teachers were forcing the Galatians to do. They were insisting on circumcising the non-Jewish Christians. And why? Because God had commanded Abraham to circumcise the males of his family and their future generations. However, Paul's point is that God's command to circumcise came years Years after Abraham's belief in that count the stars promise. 
right? Circumcision came after Abraham believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, imagine what that meant for the Galatians, right? I imagine there was a collective sigh of relief from all the non-Jewish guys, right? And then there was this kind of, aha, moment for the Jewish Galatians, the Jewish Galatians, that circumcision, a work of the law, was not necessary in order to be accepted by God. But rather, like Abraham, justification was still by faith. And it always had been. And let's go one more here. Both Jews and non-Jews who are justified by faith, like Abraham, are here called sons of Abraham. Now let that sink in for a moment. I imagine there's some non-Jews here. You who are non-Jew, not of Abraham's kin, you are identified as sons of Abraham because of your faith. I mean, imagine, imagine if the false gospel that these false teachers are teaching was actually true. Imagine if when you first believed in Christ that you were now obligated to keep the Jewish laws in order to be right with God. All 613 commandments of the law. Imagine a life of animal sacrifices and annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem and dietary restrictions and rules about haircuts and beards like sibbies and clothing and bacon restrictions and circumcision and hundreds more. Imagine walking out of here today believing that you weren't accepted by God unless you started doing those very things tonight. Can you feel that? Can you feel the weight of that burden? Aren't you glad that you don't need the law to do something it was never designed to do? Good works cannot cleanse our conscience. Good works cannot remove our guilt and our shame. Our self-reliant good works cannot, will not justify us before God. They never could. They never will. But to the one who receives the authentic gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ crucified to save powerless sinners, the one who receives that message by faith, that soul receives the gift of Christ's righteousness, receives a new identity. Listen again to verse 7. Know then that it is, to, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. By faith, you are the true child of Abraham. You, like Abraham, are an heir of the promises of God. And you, like Abraham, the man of faith, you are called a friend of God. That's your new identity. Do you live in that identity? What does it mean? What does that identity mean for you? Well, listen again to verses 8 and 9. In the scripture, scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that? Did you catch that the gospel was preached to Abraham? Really? Like the good news given to Abraham was this, that all the nations will be blessed. How is that the gospel? Well, isn't it in keeping, isn't it in keeping with the person and the message of Jesus that God's grace, hear this, God's grace, his gift has gone way beyond the geopolitical and ethnic boundaries of the nation of Israel and embraces all nations and blesses all peoples. Or put another way, the church isn't some second cousin twice removed to Israel, nor is the church the replacement of Israel. The church is the expansion of Israel. God is growing his family into the multi-ethnic people of God that he promised to Abraham. He's fulfilling that promise as the world hears, the world hears and puts their faith in Jesus. Today, really, today, more than ever, this is evident as you see the message of Jesus going out to billions. And what's more, God is bringing nations right here to us to hear the message. And so what is God saying in his gospel that he preached to Abraham? What does it mean, all the nations shall be blessed? Well, in a word, God is glorified when the peoples of the world find their righteousness and their true identity in Jesus, who is the offspring of Abraham. And that in Jesus, the people of the world will find blessing, the blessing of righteousness and peace through the spirit of the risen Christ. That's good news. That's good news. And I wonder, what does it mean for you? The truth that all the nations shall be blessed, it's a promise that drives our mission here at Seven Mile Road. It's the hope that sends our Pauls and our Barnabases out into the unreached corners of this world. And it's the hope that opens these very church doors every week to the nations that God has brought right here to this neighborhood. It's a hope that compels you and I to bless unbelievers wherever we find them with the authentic gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. Children of Abraham, that's what you are. Children of Abraham, will you live out your identity and share the blessing of that authentic gospel of Jesus and the blessing of the good fruits of his Holy Spirit? Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, we do want to live out of the blessing of knowing Christ, the identity of being in Christ, being children of Abraham, children of faith. Show us what that means, Lord. Show us how to engage our world this week with the truth, the truth of the authentic gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.